Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Again, everyone, Charles Marshall here on a rotation of the West Coast Foreclosure Show. And I am broadcasting, as typically I am, live from Southern California. Uh, Neil Garfield will continue to broadcast his regular show on alternate Thursdays. And yes, typically we trade off every Thursday. Well, sometimes there's special events or circumstances that occasion a change to that format. As always, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. You may also donate by calling into 951-451-1230. That's 951-451-1230. And I have with me today Bill Padalo, and he will be breaking down some very interesting nuggets that he's taken away from a recent deposition in a Wyoming federal case. Uh, And this is uh, a, a case where, like so many California cases, the borrower is on the plaintiff's side. Uh, the short case title, Plaskowitz versus Nation Star, and Bill will will weigh in now uh, on that case and some excellent intel to report to the listeners. Uh, go go ahead and take it away, Bill. Sure, thanks, Charles. Good to be here. Um, yeah, this is an interesting case I'm working on in Wyoming, and I saw that you posted the deposition transcript uh, for today's show, which the listeners can certainly, I would uh, recommend that they take their time and go through and review and read that entire transcript by the Nation Star slash Mr. Cooper Witness in this case, who goes by the name of A.J. Lall, L-O-L-L. He happens to be a witness who, uh, according to his testimony, 
uh, is one of the top witnesses for Nation Star. He actually trains other witnesses uh, for cases such as this uh, for the Securitized Trust and the servicing of these loans. And I have to say, uh, you know, I've read an awful lot of deposition transcripts and been a part of many of them over the last uh, decade. Uh, this one, I would probably say, is, is a textbook example of, of servicer testimony in these types of cases where the witness claims to know everything and has verified everything according to the questions that are being asked for the most part, um, knows the answers to everything and, can, and, and speaks as though he has personal knowledge to everything. But at the end of the day, by his own uh, testimony and by the evidence produced and, and evidence that has not been produced that is referenced, he clearly absolutely knows nothing. It's it's just a, an, a complete effort in um, regurgitating what he is told to say and a, nothing but a heaping pile of, of hearsay, lies, inconsistencies, you name it. And it's really worthwhile to read, and there's some couple, uh, we only have, you know, 15 minutes today to really kind of talk about this, but there was a couple real key points in here that um, I extracted that I really want to highlight and accentuate. The first thing is we hit them on the questions of the accounting to the investors and whether or not that accounting can be verified. And we've really been talking about this a lot in the last few months based on the other shows that we've done in, the, in cases in Florida or whatnot, that they don't have any loan-level verifiable accounting on these securitized loans. And so we really hammered on this to see what he had to say about uh, the defaults being declared by the investors, and can those defaults be verified in any way? And the question, I'll read the question out loud by uh, our side here, the council says, can the amount that's owed to the investors be verified? And the answer, it's beyond the scope of what I would involve with invest reporting. Because in some trusts, the servicer is advancing the interest to the trust, even if the customer is not making payments. So the trust may be made whole, even if the loan has not been paid, which then those monies would be, once collected, would be payable to the servicer. Okay. So uh, when I had showed this to Neil prior to doing the show, Neil's comment was saying, well, this is clearly double talk. And the question that uh, would have been good to ask following that response would be, well, if the investors are made whole, then who has an interest in this subject loan? <laughs> because it's clearly um, not who they are claiming it to be. And so as we delved into the questions about can you identify, who are the investors? Can you identify them? And all of these types of things, um, it's very clear that they don't know, can't answer those questions just as to who they are and where the money is going. Even when they're claiming to be speaking on behalf of the trust as a servicer, they are unable to determine the the initial payments that were made on these loans, uh, whether or not they even made it to the investors. And so what I've been harping on and saying is, listen, from a forensic standpoint, when you have a financial transaction where one side is claiming there's a, a default and money is owed and they provide a lump sum amount, typically the place where you start to go back and to analyze the figures is from the very beginning of the transaction. And 
many of these folks uh, who had loans securitized during the time period of the 2000s, they made payments for a year or two or three or four or whatever uh, prior to the alleged default. And so the question is, is okay, well, if this loan was in a trust in so five and payments were made for at least uh, allegedly three, four years, what happened to that money? Where did those payments go? And that's something that they are unable to answer or explain. And therefore, I don't know how you can forensically analyze the existence of a true default if you don't have a complete picture of the whole accounting. The second thing that was real interesting about his testimony is he talks about the assignments. And there were a number of assignments that were made in this case, and including some corrective assignments that were done by NationStar. And in the assignments, they claim to have assigned not only the mortgage, but the note as well. And that's very typical, uh, where the assignments will state uh, they're assigning the, the deed of trust or mortgage along with the note. And the questions were repeatedly asked, uh, what do you know about the transfer of the note in these assignments? And his response uh, is he gets kind of agitated, but he says, listen, these assignments never transfer the note. Uh, especially with MERS be, excuse me, being involved, they never handle the note. They don't have any power to hold the note or do anything with it, and the notes are never transferred or assigned, just the mortgage. And he repeats this and makes it very clear that even though these documents that they create state that these certain act, actions occur and that, these, and that they're transferring the note, He's basically admitting that that's a false statement and that these assignments are simply procedural. They're not relied upon by the trust or anyone else. They do not transfer the notes. And I think that's a very critical point that maybe you can touch on in a moment. But in admitting that the notes are never transferred, in this particular case, it was a, alleged to have been assigned to a Lehman Trust. And when it got into the questioning about the custodial history of the note, and it gets pretty comical because he can't identify who the custodian is or, who, or the custodial history of the note or anything of that nature, um, but he makes the admission that he reviewed the custodial collateral file on this loan, and inside the custodian collateral file were the note and, and uh, mortgage have sat since it allegedly went into the trust, there were no endorsements on the note and no assignments in the, in the collateral file. So all we have is a testimony that the, the note never had an endorsement on it. And, and of course, uh, one appears now that NationStar stepped into the equation uh, with the TADA endorsement, but that it was never in the file and that the assignments that they executed and created, even though it says that they transferred the note or whatever, um, those, those events never, ever occurred. Um, and so it's, it gets, it's very, very interesting um, as he goes into all of this testimony because he spins himself into the ground by giving contradictory dates as to when he first saw the original notes. Um, first it was 2014, and then it was 2017, and so on and so forth. But um, at the end of the day, he claims that the only way he knows that this loan went into the trust is because he's simply, quote-unquote, confident that it happened and that 
he verified it in some way, which he can't explain. All the prior servicers' documentation of, and notes and things that occurred prior to Nation Star receiving the loan in 14. So it's just, it's kind of nonsensical uh, as to uh, his testimony. And when you really lay it out, at the end of the day, uh, he absolutely uh, cannot verify that which he says he did. And all the evidence clearly shows that the story he's telling uh, that this loan went into the trust clearly could not have happened by by not only his admissions and the evidence he put forth, but by the mere fact that he doesn't even know and can't explain where the original note is, and uh, and he won't explain how the endorsement got on that note after 14. So uh, I wanted to touch upon this in terms of California law, because a lot of these listeners here in this on the West Coast show is when you're executing these documents with these statements in there that they clearly know are false and are not true, um, what type of implications do you think that might have under deceptive trade practices or maybe under uh, California Penal Code 115, Charles? Well, I think the Penal Code section, and I sometimes cite that in my pleadings, that, that's, a, that's still the, the outside edge, meaning you have to really – fully work up and document and have a judge sign off on at a minimum uh, either the defeat of an opposition, you know, by way of a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment, meaning your case is definitely going to trial. You have to get a judge to sign off on the, the scenario where the note has not been proved up properly and where actual possession and actual transfer of the original is shown to have happened. And the, the difficulty, frankly, is getting judges to acknowledge the importance of that. I mean, California law, like the state law in, in, in so many states, requires whether you're in a mortgage state or a deed of trust state, there's a requirement that at the time of transfer of the assigned interest in the debt, meaning the note and the associated mortgage or deed of trust, those have to go together. They're assumed to travel together. And if they're separated and they're not going together, that's supposed to be a problem. And the problem for borrowers in California in turn is that there has been accepted into the sort of foreclosure lawsuit uh, cases that are commonly referred to. There's an accepted position now where the institutional defendants can claim that the note and deed of trust are separable and that they do not have to travel together. And there's established case law for that principle now in California. Now, I continue to argue based on what I think is clearly the better law and certainly the older and more settled law that they must travel together. However, particularly with MERS as an intermediary, uh, there's now a chain of cases to the effect that they do not have to travel, travel together, the, the note and, and, and deed of trust. So, you know, and, and, and also the actual requirement to really you know, show me the note, as the saying goes. Uh, there are a lot of cases where the judges will not 
make that a requirement. So this is still well. What I I, I, I think kind of what I'm I'm after a little bit is people are taking reliance upon these documents. I mean, they're given um, the presumption of validity and prima facially on their face when they say these transactions occur. But now we have admissions that by one of the largest servicers that even though we're saying that in these documents and we're and they're notarizing these documents saying that these transactions occurred, they didn't really occur. And so that should blow the validity or of presumption, a presumptive validity to these documents to say, wait a minute here, if you you're, we can't rely on these statements that are in these documents that you've recorded. I mean, does that not subject us to? tearing into the, the, the actual transactions underlying, and we're going to end up with exactly what we have right here in this testimony. And I think it is, it, it is, it is the case that where you can show as here that the only basis for standing behind a claim at the transfer into the trust of a specific note was actually made, that that claim rests on the confidence of the declarant you know, even with the more kind of institutional friendly judges in California, I think a lot of those judges would still blanch at deposition testimony or testimony introduced at trial if it got that far. It certainly could be introduced in opposition to a motion for summary judgment, as those will often come from the institutional defendants to try to derail a case from going to trial. That, that you know, the nub of what I'm saying is that I don't see any judge relying on the confidence of uh, a testifying witness in a deposition. Uh, they're going to have to have something much more concrete than that. Well, as you know very well, the witnesses just tend to point to a SEC filing of a pooling and servicing agreement, and they say, if you want to know what happened in all the transactions, just it's all right there in the document. It speaks for itself. That's the sole basis of the authority for anybody to do everything, even though we know that that's a weak argument. And the PSAs are usually unexecuted. They don't have loan schedules. As this witness here, he testifies repeatedly that he reviewed the loan schedule, but yet there is no loan schedule, and one has never been produced. <laughs> so, um, but his testimony, if he's saying you must rely on the PSA, every single thing that occurred by the evidence is contrary and contradictory to the PSA. <laughs> so uh, especially the fact when he says, I looked at the custodian file and there was no endorsement on a note. Well, then that note never went into a trust, period, from that perspective. This does show the power of depositions and how they can be used at trial later in the sense that in this type of situation, this particular individual who probably does have uh, some of the best uh, information, <laughs> however inadequate uh, and, and however on the fly, uh, this individual may have some of the best information on the provenance of the loan at issue in this case, and is certainly open, has certainly opened himself up for impeachment testimony at trial. So that's a big deal. Uh, now, the other piece to today's show is th this kind of creates a jumping on, a jumping off point. And uh, feel, feel free to weigh in um, on this piece as well. What, what, what I'm going to be presenting to the audience now is how uh, in bankruptcy situations that 
you know, are the consumers who get into these loan situations, and particularly after the mortgage meltdown, a lot of times they'll end up in bankruptcy for one reason or another. Could be strategic, could be substantive, could be both. There are a lot of different paths to bankruptcy uh, for borrowers in these difficult situations with these types of loans. And one of the aspects to that is proving up the proving up the proofs of claim, proving up the the actual creditor who has to come into bankruptcy court. Uh, but what happens in a lot of those cases is that the ostensible creditor will violate the automatic stay. And Neil just did a post about this very recently on his blog. And the the gist of what of what Neil is getting at is that when when you have a bankruptcy, you automatically get what's called the bankruptcy automatic stay. You get it as the so-called debtor. You get it as the filer. The automatic stay appears literally at the minute you file. I mean, I've seen a lot of different scenarios where the filing goes in, you know, one or two minutes before a given auction sale, whether that, whether that happens electronically or whether it happens with a clerk's file stamp at a window, a filing window in a bankruptcy court. However, that one or two minute, you know, time is prior to the start of a given non-judicial foreclosure auction. However, that goes down. You just need 30 seconds a minute in advance, and that's the presumptive automatic stay. And it prohibits all creditors from moving forward, including and especially secured creditors. And in fact, you know, if you're an unsecured creditor, let's say there's a credit card debt, your only remedy typically would be to to bring in what's called an adversary proceeding where you're actually alleging fraud that the the borrower the the supposed borrower the supposed credit card holder actually committed some kind of patent verifiable fraud and how they handled the card how they handled the debt how they took took the uh the credit card out originally. When you're looking at a secured debt, whether it's a car, a house, a boat, there is a remedy of sorts for the for the creditor related to the automatic stay. And that remedy is to go into bankruptcy court and file what's called a motion for relief from stay. Now again, these apply only where the creditor is a supposedly secured creditor. And one of the anomalies to this situation relates to unlawful detainer procedure and practice. And uh, Neil touched on this uh, in his blog post. This is a, I would say it's a complicated area. I, I would also say analytically that theoretically motion for relief from stay analysis does not even apply to an unlawful detainer scenario. And the reason for that is at the time of taking the property to sale, unless and until you can reverse that sale, then the the former former homeowner, former borrower 
is no longer on title, is no longer the legal owner. So at that time, the property is actually no longer secured. However, because of the former secured status and because in some cases the judicial foreclosure, non-judicial foreclosure is being challenged or can be challenged, what that means in the real world, the bankruptcy world, is that those unlawful detainer proceedings, if someone files for bankruptcy while they're being subjected to those proceedings, this could be California or any other state, the automatic stay still kicks in. It kicks in in the following way. Now, you know, we could go into the complexities we won't on this show. Uh, as listeners may know, uh, what I do on a number of these shows is introduce a topic which we will go back and revisit. I certainly intend to revisit the topic that uh, Bill and I were discussing shortly ago on this adversary proceeding situation and the uh, the automatic stay situation. That is certainly a topic that we will we will delve into more deeply in a future show. What I would like listeners to take away for today is that even in an unlawful detainer situation as complex as that is, it's absolutely the case that creditors must go into bankruptcy court. Uh, the, the case that Neil cited on his blog, and again, go to, go to his blog to check that out related to uh, consumers, debtors, borrowers filing sanctions motions when the automatic stay is presumptively violated. Uh, when you when you read that, what you come away with, and this is the law anywhere and everywhere in terms of bankruptcy procedure all over the country. Um, you know, I say that with my usual disclaimer. I'm not giving legal advice. I'm just giving you general general rhythms and general contours to law. You need to consult with a specific attorney in your jurisdiction to clarify further from a legal point of view. But for now, keep in mind that State court is never the place to address a bankruptcy stay situation. It must always be addressed in bankruptcy court. And the case cited on Neil's blog discusses this. This is a critical bankruptcy uh, principle. So the way it applies in unlawful detainer situations is even though a lot of judges will say, look, this is unlawful detainer. This isn't even a secure debt anymore. I'm not even recognizing the stay. For that to happen, even that level of decision by the judge, the creditor must go into bankruptcy court and must file a motion for relief from stay. Now, they can file a motion for relief from stay that essentially is styled as a motion to confirm the stay does not apply, and some judges will certainly sign off on that in an unlawful detainer context, However, the general principle is the same. They must go into bankruptcy court. If they can't do it from outside, uh, you know, if they, let's say a UD trial is coming up and the, the defendant in that trial, they're very understandably worried about being evicted. They file a bankruptcy, let's say, three days, a week before the trial, then that will trigger the automatic stay. And state court is not the place to visit that. Going to court and demanding the trial go forward or misrepresenting that there's a bankruptcy, any of those things would be illegal 
And yes, you can bring sanctions for violations. The, the short of it is anytime a creditor wants to move against you on a secured debt or formally secured debt in the case of an unlawful detainer situation, they must go into bankruptcy court. They must do a motion for relief from stay. If they go after you and do something substantive and take your property to sale or do something else without that motion, without that relief, then yes, you need to go after them and you can go after them in bankruptcy court through a sanctions motion. And uh, Bill, we're coming up on the end of the show. Do you have any final thoughts? Well, no, I uh, appreciate uh, being on with you as always, Charles, and a very good analysis on that uh, bankruptcy UD thing. It's good to hear. Yeah, excellent. Uh, So Bill and I will take up matters again uh, soon to our listeners in the audience. And uh, Neil will be back next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.